Thank you, Pastor Wagner, and uh, I'd like to say good evening to the people of Christ Church, our visitors, as well as those of you who are viewing us by live stream, and I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn with me in them to the ninth chapter of the Old Testament book of Esther. Esther, we're going to read a portion of the ninth chapter, and then we're going to read the three verses of the tenth chapter. We have been working our way through the book of Esther as the pastoral staff, and uh, we come now to the last uh, sermon from God's Word on this precious Old Testament book. So please hear the Word of God. I'm going to read the first five verses of Esther 9, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 16 and read through the end of chapter 10. Hear the word of the true and living God. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, that is Haman's edict, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. And then moving down to verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day they rested and made that day uh, made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Ador as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Ador and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make 
them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the king of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth that these, the days of Purim, should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fast and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's look to the, to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. O oh, Holy Fathers, we bow in your presence tonight. We sense very acutely our need to call upon you for the gracious assistance of your Holy Spirit. May he come in copious measures, we ask, upon people and preacher alike. Give seed to the sower, bread to the eater, and accomplish the purpose for which you've sent it. 
to the end that your own precious word may not return unto you void. And we ask you to do this, O Lord, not because we deserve such a blessing, but because we believe that such a blessing, blessing was purchased at the expense of your own beloved son's death. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Thus far in our studies of the book of Esther, we have observed repeatedly that though the Lord's name is never mentioned so much as once throughout the entirety of the book, he is nonetheless everywhere present in this book. Indeed, at every stage of the unfolding of the story, it is the hand, it is the purpose of God that prevails at every turn of events herein. And behind the scenes, as it were, Behind the visible, it is the God of Israel over and over again fulfilling his sovereign will. It is God who raises up Esther. It is God who raises up Mordecai. It is God, as we've seen, who gives restlessness, sleeplessness to King Ahasuerus in the middle of the night to consult the book of memorable deeds. It is God who thwarts the wicked intentions of Haman. Indeed, in all circumstances, in the events of this story, almost unnoticeably and almost anonymously, it is the Lord God of Israel who exercises what Pastor Mir called his unstoppable will. And when it seems to you that your own life is being swept along, by unforeseen powerful circumstances, when it appears to you that the world, your world, is plunging headlong, altogether out of control, never forget that there is one who reigns in the heavens forever, and he ordains all things according to the counsel of his own will, from whom, through whom, and to whom, are all things, Paul tells us in his epistle to the Romans. He is exercising, although mysteriously to us, but purposefully and surely, his eternal, unchangeable decrees. Be sure that God knows what he is about. And that for the Christian is not simply a doctrine for us to confess, Rather, it is a truth in which to rejoice. It is a comfort in which to find strength and encouragement to our deepest distresses. And that not for one fraction of a second is my life ever at the mercy of unanticipated circumstances. All of these things we've learned in the book of Esther. Now, these two closing chapters, the ninth and the tenth, give us the details, you'll notice, of this remarkable, really, this supernatural reversal of fortunes regarding the Jews and their enemies. We find that underscored in the very first verse of the ninth chapter, where we read, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hope to gain the mastery over them, lo and behold, what happens? The reverse occurred. 
The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Against all the odds, as it were, the Jews are victorious. This people who seemed to be at the mercy of their enemies, indeed had nowhere else to turn, discover that there is a God who was for them, for they were his people. And as Esther and Mordecai and the Jews fasted, and no doubt prayed, though it's not mentioned, God was pleased to hear their prayers and to intervene on their behalf. And the intended victims became the triumphant victors in this story. And they rejoice and celebrate in the triumph of God in the defeat of their enemies. Now, as I've sought to mention in these previous few moments, we need to remember that as we ponder the story of Esther, and find ourselves caught up, as it were, in the human drama of the narrative and get caught up in the brilliance, I think, of the plot development of the story in this book, that really this account is all about the Lord though he's never mentioned. It's all about God's triumph over the powers of darkness. It is about God guarding, protecting his covenant people in all of their waywardness, preserving them, defending the honor of his name in the world, and at the same time bringing to naught yet again the attempts of the devil to bring contempt and dishonor Upon the name of the Lord. Now there are some six things I want us to see. And I want to move as fast as I can through these. But I want to consider these with you. And hopefully we'll manage to do so as briefly as possible. Notice in the first place the remarkable twist of affairs. That I said is underscored in the very opening verse of the ninth chapter. Now in the twelfth month, which is in the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, in other words, the edict had gone forth at the conspiracy of Haman, the authority of the king was Behind it, the power of the empire appeared to ensure that it was going to take place on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. On the very day when it appeared that the Jews would begin to cease to exist, Due to the conspiracy of their enemies, their enemies themselves are vanquished and are subdued. Evil is ultimately thwarted and righteousness prevails. Now we must not miss, indeed we cannot miss, this remarkable twist of affairs that God was pleased to accomplish for these people who bore his name. Remember that they were a disobedient people. They were a backslidden people. Spiritually speaking, they were not, were not where they ought to have been. They were a compromised people. 
Nonetheless, the Lord is pleased to step in at the very hour, as it were, of their intended destruction and demise to defend and to preserve them. Not to validate their backslidden condition, mind you. Not as though their spiritual state did not matter. That they were living in disobedience and in a compromised way before the Lord. But rather that God was once again displaying his grace to his people. He was not treating them as their sins deserved. And it was that wasn't that the great wonder of the psalmist in the 103rd Psalm that as he reviews the mercies of the Lord and of the covenant king, he there declares he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, sings the psalmist. Now note this. So great is his steadfast, that is his kessed, his covenant love toward those who fear him. Now I want to suggest just in passing that this may be a word for someone present here tonight. You've come here on this occasion and perhaps you're living in a backslidden state or condition. And you're not where you ought to be as a Christian Disobedience is spelled in capital letters, as it were, over your life. Maybe you've drifted in recent days. There may even be something of a rebellious spirit within you, something of a shaking of the fist in the face of God. My dear friend, I would remind you, the Lord is rich in mercy. He is rich in mercy. And he is full of compassion. And realistically speaking, we have, you and I, no comprehensive grasp of the riches of the grace of our God. He is slow to anger. Turn to me, he says, and I will turn to you. And be sure of this. If you turn to him again, you will find him turning unto you. Even as the prodigal son found his father turning to him. For in truth, God is the one who turns us back to himself. And in our turning to him, he runs to us in mercy as we read of the prodigal. But equally so, I think it needs to be said that we cannot miss the fact that this is not always the way God is pleased to deal with his people or to deal on behalf of his church in the pursuit of his purposes. There are times when the enemies of God and of the gospel appear to be the ones who prevail. They appear to have the upper hand. And that's why when we consider such things, we need you and I to cultivate an eternal perspective. We need to realize in, in, in terms of eternity that God will always maintain the upper hand over his enemies. And that's why we need to learn as we look around us and we see the enemies of the gospel appearing to prevail. And we think that God appears to abandon the scene. 
I'm reminded of those words of the Apostle Paul in the second letter to the Thessalonians. Indeed, words that ought to be engraved, inscribed upon our own hearts. He says there, writing, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord is revealed from heaven with all his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. And in that sense, the tables are not ultimately and finally turned until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, when God breaks into history for the final time and reverse the fortunes of his church and vindicate forever the glory of his son and bring to fruition the perfection of his purposes. But then secondly, notice with me a feature in verse 3, I think, that calls for our consideration. Verse 3, all the officials of the provinces, we are told, and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. For the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. The fear of Mordecai, so we're told, was responsible, humanly speaking then, for the Jews being enabled to overcome their enemies. Now, it's possible that the writer here is simply telling us that Mordecai's life spoke with such power and authority that it exerted a mighty effect upon these officials and governors. No doubt they wanted to attach themselves to this figure who represented such power, knowing which side their bread was buttered on. Here is this rising star in the empire, Mordecai, and, and the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. And if that is the point of the writer here, and I'm sure in some measure, in some measure it is, then there is a profound lesson for us to take to heart. Because Mordecai became such a man, not by conforming to and fitting in with the world, but rather by boldly confronting the world. And such are the kind of men and women and boys and girls that the Lord will always use in his service and for his glory. The kind of people that God will take and use for his glory in this world. There are some, we, we live in a day when the church seems to be obsessed with getting and cultivating methods, better methods with which to impact this unbelieving world. But there is a sense, I think, in which God is totally unconcerned about methods. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Methods, they have their place. But God's great concern is not with us cultivating methods, but with us becoming the kind of men and women that God can use for his glory. Becoming the kind of instruments, holy instruments, instruments fit 
for the master to use. The church obsesses itself today with better methods while God is looking for better men and better women to complete his purposes. And as we look around and wonder, what is the best way for reaching the lost? And that is a good question to ask. But dear people, the best way to reach the lost is the way that God has always used, which is through the godliness and the passion of his people to witness to the gospel. We are his ambassadors, we're told in scripture. Where he has set us in our life, wherever that may be, in whatever station God has placed us, in our places of work and study, in our engagements with our neighbors, we're to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, the leaven of life. But it seems to me quite probable that we're, we might ought to understand the phrase of Mordecai, beyond, the fear of Mordecai beyond that. Because if you look in your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 31, and this is where, in a sense, I think Scripture interprets Scripture. We've seen in Esther little clues being dropped from time to time. And there may well be a hint of a clue here. For in Genesis 31 and verse 42, Jacob is speaking. And he's speaking to his uncle Laban, who proved to be more of a deceiver than Jacob. And, he, and Jacob says to his uncle Laban, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely you would have sent me away empty-handed. Now there, Jacob calls the Lord the fear of Isaac. It's a proper name. It was a designation of God, the God who instilled fear and awe and reverence in his people, the God who was majestic and rightly to be feared. And I wonder, perhaps, if we're being given something of a hint in the passing, in the story of Esther, that behind the scenes, it is the fear of Isaac, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the fear of Mordecai, who was ordering these events. And if we are right and seeing something of a connection here, then what fell on these nobles and officials was not simply the fear of Mordecai as such, but what that fear signified. The fear of God. Here was a man who was brought, who brought the world to come into the presence of the world that was. And it was such a remarkable thing that one single God-honoring life then can have such a profound effect upon people. I think we can become so easily disheartened by the poverty of our lives and please don't misunderstand me. We wonder what could God ever do with such as the likes of me? And we think we have to be someone, something unique, someone especially gifted. But it's not great giftedness that God blesses, but great likeness to Jesus Christ that he blesses. 
the kind of lives that God takes and uses to impact this world are ordinary lives that are devoted to Jesus Christ. Not many noble, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty. When the ransomed church of Jesus Christ is brought to glory, proportionately, there will not be many PhDs. There won't be. There won't be many mighty. There won't be many Calvins. There won't be many Augustines. There won't be many Jonathan Edwards. And praise God that we've had them. But what a multitude there will be of people whom we've never heard. People of whom, to whom we never gave so much as a second thought. And they will be the great ones in the kingdom of God. But then there's a third feature here as we hurry on in the chapter that calls for our consideration. And it's the number, you'll notice, of some 75,000 individuals that the Jews killed in verse 16. Now we know from verse 11 of chapter 8 that this was not an act of bloodthirsty revenge. In fact, the Jews were acting in self-defense. It was their enemies that they put to death. It was their enemies who had attacked them. And here's the significant point. The 75,000 who were killed were those who chose to disregard the king's second edict. The second edict had been sent out, granting the Jews the right to respond to those who had attacked them. And so we read in verse 5 of chapter 9, the Jews struck all their enemies with a sword, killing and destroying them. Now you see here, I think, again in passing, the perversity of sin. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, the enemies of the Jews had been plotting and planning. But they knew that the Jews knew what they were all about, what they were doing. And they were given the opportunity to rescind and to back down from their threatened attacks. But here's the perversity of sin. And Paul speaks of this elsewhere of the mystery of iniquity in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. Satan knows that he is a defeated foe and a used lackey, and yet he continues to go about his devilish work. He knows that his end is fixed and that his doom is sure. He knows that Christ by his cross has spoiled principalities and powers, and yet he still opposes God's purposes. That's the perversity of sin. People who hold down, suppress, Paul says in Romans 1, the revelation of God, the truth of God in unrighteousness. In fact, when you consider the extent of the Persian Empire at that time, probably around 100 million, so I'm told. The fact that the Jews only killed 75,000 is somewhat remarkable. But of course, for some commentators, the fact that there were any deaths at all placed the Jews in a bad light. But I think two responses ought to be made against that charge. The first is this, to think like that fails to take into account the defense of the nature 
of the Jews' actions. But even more than that, and this really gets to the response, to think like that is to expose your aversion, indeed your hostility to the concept of judgment. Is it strange that God should use his people to exercise righteous judgment on his enemies? Well, you may respond, well, what kind of God is that? And I would answer, it's the God of the Bible. It's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the holy and righteous God who will execute vengeance when he pleases, how he pleases, by whom he pleases, for his own glory and for the vindication of, a, of his righteousness. Now those who quibble at what we read here, I think, are people who go into convulsions when they come across the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ concerning eternal judgment. They say, well, you know, Jesus could never have said such things. My dear friend, he said them again and again and again. I tell you, my friends, Jesus speaking, Luke 12, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell fire, Gehenna. Yes, I tell you, fear him. We live in the age wherein the world blinds itself willfully to the revealed righteousness and holiness of God. If nothing else, in, this de in defense of this action, for such it was, we ought to pause and ponder what God is pleased to do to his enemies who oppose him and who oppose his people. Scattered throughout the scriptures, beginning with the worldwide flood and through to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, God has given us, as it were, signposts dotted again and again in which God is saying, now be wise, be wise, consider who your God is. Consider what an awful thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God because your God is a consuming fire. But then notice very quickly in the fourth place that in these chapters we find another striking feature and it's this, that God's triumph for the Jews becomes a cause for public and corporate rejoicing. They established a perpetual memorial of deliverance to be observed for all times. The Feast of Purim. You see it in verses 17, verse 18, and 19 of chapter 9. They were to hold the 14th day of the month of Ador as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which to sing gifts of food to one another. And at the end of verse 22, part of the recording of Mordecai in which he wrote, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another, and then significantly for this purpose, 
give gifts to the poor. You see, the great thing that the Lord had done for them was to be celebrated with feasting and with joy. God's deliverance was to be marked by rejoicing, by feasting, by corporate blessing. And this emphasis on joy, dear people, echoes a theme that covers the whole of scriptures. That in the gatherings together of God's people, as we gather ultimately in response to his great deliverance of us in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever else our gatherings are to be marked by, they're to be marked by evident joy. At the beginning of every Sunday morning service here, our pastor reminds us of that time and time and time again that our services are to be those of joy, evident joy, joy that can be seen, joy that can be felt. And the attentive reader cannot miss that note struck time and time again in Holy Scripture. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And if these Jews ever had calls for rejoicing, how much more? Do we have cause for rejoicing? The Lord has done great things for us. And then fifthly, as we hurry on, we really shouldn't miss the author's clear intention in this ninth chapter, especially in the latter half, is to explain, you'll notice, the origin of the Feast of Purim. And so from verse 24, you have this. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. Verse 26, therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term pure. This is the only feast that does not find its origin within the Torah, that is the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. And so there has to be an explanation for how this feast came to be. And it's this feast of Purim that reminded the Jews that while the man cast the lots, the ultimate issue is in the hands of God. Proverbs 16, verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, Solomon says, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And the Feast of Purim was a reminder to the Jews that history is not a series of disconnected events, far less a series of man-constructed events, but it reminded them that history is shaped by the purpose of him who ordains all things according to the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 1 and verse 11. History is not a series of random whims. History is his story. And it unfolds according to the plan and purpose of him who unfathomably exercises his sovereign prerogatives at every event therein. And in the Feast of Purim, God is reminding his people that their times are in his hands, their sovereign Lord, that he is exalted above the heavens. And this feast 
is intended to elevate the mind as well as to rejoice the heart. And so it is for those of us who live this side of the cross of Jesus Christ, where we see in the cross of our Savior, wicked men laying hands on him, the sinless one, nailing him to the cross. Man throughout history wanted to get his hands on God. And the very first time that man is able to get his hands on God, what does he do? He crucifies him. But doing it, Acts 2.23, according to the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, they intended it for evil. God purposed it for good and for his own glory. And that's why every sane Christian glories, glories in the absolute unconditional sovereignty of God. For it enables you to live your life not looking over your shoulder, wondering what's going to happen next. But knowing that he who decrees and determines all things is one who even now bears in his body the marks of your salvation. And then finally, and very even more briefly, this final feature in chapter 10 it's a little tailpiece, as it were, to the story of Esther. Is what we're told about Mordecai. And the last word, fittingly, I think, is with him. Mordecai did all that he did for the good of his people, and he spoke up for the welfare of the Jews. This is the note on which the writer ends. And what a significant note it is. With what are we left regarding Mordecai? Verse 3 of chapter 10. For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank, the king of Hashuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. Why? For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. I think these closing words leave us with a question. And it's this. Why do you do what you do as a Christian? Why do you do what you do in this church? Why do I, our pastor, and the other ministers here preach? Is it for the good of God's people? Is it that God's people might be blessed and encouraged and helped and strengthened? Is it that God's people might see and understand something of how great their God is? Here was a man who did not do what he did out of self-interest. Indeed, here's a man who did what he did for the good of his people. And in that sense, he becomes what the whole of Scripture becomes. In that sense, he is something of a type of Christ. Because he points us forward to the one who ultimately did what he did for the good of his people. Who did what he did in laying down his life in order that we might be redeemed and rescued from a lost eternity and restored to God. 
So the book, the story of Esther, has come and gone. And it tells us that God is sovereign in all that he is. It reminds us that people are God's methods. And who knows, like Esther, whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows what God, God might purpose for you as an individual to do in this church, in the world. You may think, well, you know, I don't think I'm of that order. Think of how Esther came to be where she was. She never expected to be in a beauty contest. She never expected to be raised up, but God raised her up. And he gave her a heart of courage to say, if I perish, I perish. But who knows, but that all of us have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Let's pray.